you notice on your bulletin, our sermon title this morning is, What If? Dot, dot, dot. What if what? What if Donald Trump becomes the next president? What if Hillary Clinton becomes the next president? What if Bernie Sanders becomes the next president? Or fill in the blank. Those are the leading candidates at the moment. I wonder if you've had conversations like that recently. What if, what's the future of our country going to look like? What if the health of a loved one or even your own body doesn't improve? And what if the doctors say it is cancer? What if terrorism and the war against terror does not improve but only gets worse? Have you ever thought and had conversations, what if, with your spouse about your children? What if our kids don't love going to church? What if they reject the gospel? The future brings a lot of what ifs. As we look out in the future, we don't know what it holds. We ask all kinds of questions about our lives, our families, our health, our our country, even maybe our church. What if Embassy Church stops growing? What if it declines? What if divisions rise up among us? What if elders fail us horribly? The future can be a place for us to be anxious and worried, have all kinds of frustrations as we don't know what will happen in the future. I want you to think about that as we open up God's Word to Psalm 124. What if For those of you just joining us or new to Embassy Church, I don't wake up on some day throughout the week and say, what am I going to preach? I spend time in prayer and meditation and think through what are sections of Scripture that we should go through. And here we find ourselves in a study of this section of Scripture, the Psalms of Ascent. You'll notice starting in Psalm 120 all the way through Psalm 133. There are psalms of ascent. Each of the psalms begin with this way. It's known as pilgrim songs. Songs, poems, words that were used to remind the other brothers and sisters of Israel as they would make their pilgrimage from some of the distant towns to their way to Jerusalem three times a year. This psalm we have is a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of confidence in God. And so let's read it together. I'll read out loud. You follow along in your Bibles. 517 is the page number if you're looking for them in the black Bibles around you. Page 517, Psalm 124. A song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us. Then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, 
who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. I have three prayers for our church from this psalm. I'm going to take verses 1 through 5 as the main focus for prayer number 1. And then we'll look at verses 6 and 7 for prayer number 2. And then finally, verse 8 for prayer number 3. Prayer number 1 from verses 1 through 5. My prayer is that God will make Embassy Church and all the members in it a humble church. My prayer is that we would be humble. I think this should be one of the main takeaways from this psalm. Why is this psalm in Scripture? Why has God inspired through His Holy Spirit that you and I, as we journey through the Psalms of Ascent, we would come upon Psalm 124? My thoughts are that it would lead you and I to humility. Why? Why? Because look at verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. After you have this repeated phrase in verse 1, if he had not been on our side, let Israel now say, this is probably in the singing of their caravanning and traveling on their pilgrimage, there was maybe a worship leader, like Nate was standing up here before us. And he's worship leading, and he's saying, now let Israel say, and they're supposed to respond back. Like If we were a different ethnicity primarily in this church, there would be a little bit more back and forth. I don't know if you've experienced other churches around the world or even around the states. There's a little bit more back and forth when someone preaches. You know, someone says something, and then they, people go, amen, or preach it, brother, or yeah, let's. So, so in some worship context, like here in this psalm, Psalm 124, you have the worship leader saying something, and then he's like, now let Israel, let's all say this together. You can kind of imagine someone getting the congregation involved. And so there's this repetition, most likely to help lead them in worship. But what is this phrase saying? If the Lord was not on our side, well, then what would have happened? We would have been swallowed up when the people rose up against us when their anger was kindled against us. The flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. And then the repetition again, kind of summarizing this, we would have been gone. Goners. Done. If the Lord was not on our side, meaning this, you should be humbled by the fact that there are troubles in this world that you cannot answer and solve. It's just that simple. One of the main takeaways from this is that if the Lord was not on our side, we would have been doomed and destroyed. So therefore, stop thinking you could have done it on your own. In fact, most people, because you see in the first verse here, a song of ascents of David. What's the context of this psalm? There's often, like I've said throughout this series, debates about this. I think this might be the best case made so far in my studies is that in 2 Samuel chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to show you a few verses. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, there's a good chance that David is writing this psalm out of the memory of what God did when the Philistines came to destroy David. And the reason why so many scholars link Psalm 124 with 2 Samuel chapter 5 is because of the similar language that the army of the Philistines is like the rushing waters. 
So, so listen to this. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed as king over Israel, all the Philistines went searching for him. And so when David heard about it, he went down to the stronghold and the Philistines came up out of the valley of Rephaim and David then inquired of the Lord. Why? Why did David inquire of the Lord? He was humble and he knew that he couldn't do it on his own. And so in verse 19, he says, Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, yes, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And when David came to ba- Baal Perazim, he defeated them there and said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And there's the reference. So you have an army of the Philistines coming after David as he just is anointed king. And it's described here as this breaking through, like breaking through a flood. The flood of these soldiers. And he sees the overwhelming sight of these soldiers and says, Lord, should I even try? If you're on our side, then we, we can win. And the Lord says, yes. There would be maybe a historical context for this psalm and the picture that we should get in our minds from maybe physical dangers like an invading army or terrorist attacks or whatever translation over to modern day that we would make. But I think we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't also see throughout Scripture The overwhelming torrent of the wrath of God is also one of the prominent themes of the trouble you and I face. And we would be proud. We'd be foolish to think that we can deal with God's wrath on our own. Ezekiel 3.13 says, I will make a stormy wind out of my wrath and there... I will pour out the rain of my anger, and hailstones will come down on you, says the Sovereign Lord. Or even in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, how he tells about Babylon the Great and the cup of God's wine and fury of his wrath are like great hailstones, 100 pounds each of hail falling down from heaven on people, and they cursed God for this plague of this storm. So whether it's storms or waves, this imagery is often poetic throughout Scripture to talk about not just the wrath of Philistines, but the wrath of God. And therefore, in the overwhelming danger of God's wrath, which all of you sitting before me are under, unless you have someone on your side who can save you from it. See, friends, all of us have temporary, physical, situational waves that come crashing in our lives that we might feel overwhelmed or flooded by. But make no mistake, all of us are stuck in a trap, like verse 6 says. Look down at verse 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord God who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken because someone, it's, it's the picture here that someone has come and like cut this netting that would have captured birds. This is trap for these birds in order to, like a hunter, to gather them in. Well, the birds are stuck and they cannot get out of the fowler's trap unless Somebody comes and either opens it up or maybe cuts the rope. The bird is helpless. It has, has no ability in itself to be able to save itself from the trap. Friends, this is the situation we find ourselves in before the holy wrath of God. We 
are in great need of humility before God's wrath. Samuel Rutherford says that humility is a strange flower. It grows best during the winter months and under the storms of affliction. Humility is a strange flower. Friends, our humility will grow best when we understand the great dangers that are before us, first and foremost against the almighty wrath of God's torrent and flood and wave and hailstorm against our sin, but then in whatever other afflictions God may send our way temporarily, physically, situationally. It is under these afflictions that our humility will remind us again and again. I think there was another Puritan that said God has two different strings that he plays. You know, think of a violin or a guitar. And one string is to encourage the sweetness of God's mercy, the, the, the beauty of being a humble man. You know, the, the humble man versus a proud man. One benefit of being a humble man is that you can never get knocked down if you're a humble man because you're already down, whereas proud men fall all the time. So that's one string God plays to encourage the beauty and the sweetness of humility. But another string he uses quite often is affliction and danger. So, friend, I ask you this morning, all of us, Embassy Church, my prayer is that we would be humble as we see the dangers that are before us. We would realize that we are not in control. You cannot save yourself. You are stuck in the trap, and you need somebody from outside to help you. Let me try and make this practical for all of us sitting in this room. First, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian, or if you're new to Christianity and trying to learn what it's about, it begins here at this very point. In order to become a Christian or to follow God, we must first humble ourselves and admit that, in fact, we are sinners. We have offended a holy and righteous God. And that if it wasn't for Jesus Christ's death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead, that act saves us. He comes from the outside and saves us in a situation where we can't save ourselves. And this makes Christianity so distinct, so different from every other worldview, philosophy, religion. In fact, it's probably best to not even categorize it as a religion. This is not what we do in order to impress God. It is what God has done to love us. He has loved us in Christ by becoming a man and humbling himself as a servant. Even though he was a king of kings and lord of lords, he became a servant. Even though he was a great lion, he became a lamb. Even though he was God of gods, he became a man on flesh. Even though he was judge of the world, he became judged. The innocent one, judged for our sins on the cross. This is where Christianity begins, and this is where Christianity ends, because we never move on from the cross, as we have said so often at Embassy Church. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you don't understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow God, it begins with your humility, to understand that there is great danger and you can't save yourself, so stop trying. Stop trying to swim out of the raging waters. You will drown. You are drowning now. Reach out for the life raft of Jesus Christ and say, save me. So this is how we get introduced to Christianity. But if we don't move on from this point, then realize, secondly, for those of you who are Christians this morning, this is how you grow in grace. 
You grow in your sanctification every single day because God is saving you continually. Not because, okay, God saved me, I'm now in this life raft, and now I start swimming through the raging waters. You still need His great Spirit to pull you like you're anchored to His boat, you know? This is more of like we're tubing than swimming. You need some power. You need power to save and sanctify every single day. So friends, do you have that power as a Christian? Do you realize daily that you need to humble yourself before God and say, this sin in my life, apart from you, I cannot save myself from it. I think one of the most helpful images as I've been pastoring and counseling even some of you has been to help you understand that the work of defeating sin, or if you wanted to put it from the Romans 8 language, to kill sin. John Owen has this great little meditation on that called the mortification of sin. How do, you, how do we kill sin? Answer, the Spirit of God kills sin as He changes our hearts. That's the short answer, which means this, friend, you cannot save yourself from your perpetual sin as a Christian. God has to work in you to save you. So, how does that work? Well, God's going to do it, so you should just sit around and eat potato chips and watch television and have fun and just do whatever. Well, just God's going to do it, Phil. You, you, you said. The Spirit's got to do it, so I'm waiting, Spirit, do it. Think of it like this. The Spirit of God, as John chapter 3 says, is like a wind, and it blows wherever it pleases. We can't manipulate the Spirit. We can't say, okay, God, well, I came to church, and I gave money, and I served God this week and helped with the nursery moving, and so you got to bless me now. No, 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 that's you manipulating the wind. We, we can't manipulate the wind where God blows in His Spirit. We don't understand how He sovereignly allows for some of you to continue to struggle in sin and others to have victory over it at one moment and others another. This is the mystery of how God and His sovereign purposes, saves, and sanctifies at different times and in different ways, all under the banner of His great purposes to glorify Himself. But that doesn't mean you just sit around and do nothing. So think of it like you're sitting on a boat, a sailboat, in fact. And if the Spirit is the wind of God, my question to you are you doing any work as a sailor to put up your sail? Think through this image, friend, as you're a Christian and you're fighting through your sin. Are you sitting around doing nothing, laying, taking a nap in the boat, saying, all right, spirit, when are you going to blow? And maybe the spirit has blown and you were just napping. Or are you fervently trying to make sure the boat is ready and the sails are up? The illustration connection is... Are you sitting under God's word? That's putting up the sails. That's making sure the boat is ready. Are you praying? Are you gathering around brothers and sisters and asking them to help speak truth into your life? All of these activities is the putting up the sails so that when the Spirit comes, you will start moving in your boat through the torrent of the waves, of the dangers of the sin in this world and the dangers of this life. Do you see the picture, friends? The Spirit moves the boat, but you don't sit around doing nothing. You work fervently to do the means of grace to God's shower on you. So we must realize, friends, as Christians or as non-Christians, we don't save ourselves. God's Spirit saves us. The main theme I think we should take away from this psalm is that if God does not do it, we would be destroyed. We would be overwhelmed. 
Which then leads to our second prayer. Our second prayer is that we should not be overwhelmed by sin anymore because we should be thankful. My prayer for embassy is that our humility will lead to our thankfulness. And that we'd be so thankful that God has already saved us. That's most clearly seen here in verse 6 and 7. I think it's kind of implicit, don't you think, when you read verse 1, if God had not been on our side, this would have happened? But he makes it explicit. So we all know without a shadow of a doubt in verse 6 and 7. But blessed be the Lord God. This is a common phrase you use throughout the Psalms. In Psalms of thanksgiving. To be thankful for what God has already done. So blessed be God. Praise God. Let's be thankful to God that he did not give us over to the prey of their teeth. So we switch from water imagery to now there's this giant animal. This creature that's going to come and roar and eat you. The dangers are just grow in intensity, so again, that you feel this overwhelming danger that's in front of you, but that overwhelming danger should lead to overwhelming thanksgiving. That as we're humbled before this great danger, we should know that there's no way we're going to be able to save ourselves, but thanks be to God, He has already saved us. We have escaped like a bird. We have escaped Friends, are you thankful this morning that God has already brought a way for you to escape from the dangers, of whether it's the water and the waves, or whether it's the picture of this being trapped in a snare, a snare of sin, or whatever else it might be. God is on your side. So I play a lot of sports, and I've coached different teams, and throughout playing sports and observing sports, there's oftentimes a little phrase that a coach will say, man, I'm really glad that guy's on my team. You ever felt that way? You ever been in sports? Or maybe rooted for a certain player and a certain sports team? Like, man, I'm glad. The Chicago so-and-so. We have that guy on our team because he's the best. What a small little illustration that we should take home to us. Aren't you so glad that God's on your team? He's the best. He's the strongest. He delivers. He saves. How would you have gotten through, and you fill in the blank, look back in your life. How would you have gotten through, fill in the blank, if you didn't have God on your side? And then think about all the people that aren't in this room today that don't know God. How are they getting through the dangers of this world, the dangers of death? the dangers of sin and God's wrath against them. Doesn't that just start to lead you and me to overwhelming thanksgiving? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is on your team? How sweet and awful is the place is a real old hymn that we've never sung. Maybe we will one day. The words are beautiful. Says, while all our hearts and all our songs are joining to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there was still room, while thousands are making a wretched choice and rather starve than come? You see, this picture in the hymn here is. We're all gathering here, joining the feast of God's word and his grace as we gather every Sunday. But have you ever asked yourself, Lord, why am I here? 
Why am I a guest to your banquet and your feast? Not just weekly on Sundays, but your eternal banquet in heaven. Why are, why are you here? The answer to that question should lead to thanksgiving, shouldn't it? Maybe because someone shared the gospel with you. Maybe because you had Christian parents. Maybe because God softened your heart to the gospel, etc., etc. We can look back in our lives and just be overwhelmed with thanksgiving. Why? Why us? Why are we in this room? We are a room of people, a gathering not of, of great people, of humble people that are just overwhelmed with thanksgiving that God has saved us. Why us? There's really no good reason. The scriptures only say, well, to maximize the glory of his grace because there's no good reason to choose any of us. There's no good reason to save any of us. And in fact, when he does choose to save Israel, for example, he chooses the least of all the peoples, only to maximize the greatness of his power that David and the Philistines, as David fights the Philistines, Israel, being small and weak, God saves. That they would know. Is that you? Are you thankful that God's not just saved you first and foremost as a Christian? Are you thankful, overwhelmed? How many things has God saved you from as you've continued to grow in Christ? Are you still married? Are you thankful that God has saved you from divorce? Are you still alive? Are you thankful that God's given you life? Or are your kids still going to church and thankful to talk about church? And on and on we could go. Is there not overwhelming thanksgiving that should be flowing from our hearts when we look and see the things that God has saved us from? I was thinking this week, when we apply this to our church corporately, it's two years. There's not been a single case of church discipline formally. I don't know if that's like a record or if that's a low bar or a high bar. I, I haven't compared like notes with all other churches to be like, man, but I'm thankful. Are you thankful that there's never been a division that's divided the church and we've now got two different churches? Embassy A and Embassy B? No, we're still one church. Just think along those lines and see if those beginning questions I asked you at the start of this message don't start being flipped on their head. What, what if so-and-so becomes the next president? What if, what if, what if, what if? What if God wouldn't have done this? What if God would not have saved Noah through the waters of his wrath in Genesis chapter 6? What if in his anger he saw even the unrighteousness of every single man, including Noah's family, who would soon get drunk and be passed out after the flood and say, no, he's not even worth saving either. What if God decided not to choose a people out of all the different nations and make a name for himself in Israel? And what if, what if God decided that he was just going to let them stay in slavery under the people's awful situation that they were in under Pharaoh? And as the waters were parted before them, what if he decided to just let those waters fall down on them in the story of the Exodus? What if? What if God did not decide in the person of Jesus Christ to come down as a man and make it clear to all of you 
that God is with us, he is for us, and he is on our side. So much so that he would identify himself with us and our sin by dying on a cross. What if God didn't do that? Where would you be right now? I think that if we learn from this psalm, if it had not been, what if he didn't do this and protect us and save us? Don't you think that that might shape the way you think about your life, that we should probably think more about the past acts of God's grace to save us than worry about the present uncertainties of this world? Friends, I challenge you this morning to change your what-ifs about the future to what-ifs. What if God didn't do this? And see if that doesn't lead to overwhelming thanksgiving in our hearts. My third and final prayer for Embassy Church from this psalm We'd be humble that that humility would lead to overwhelming thanksgiving. And finally, that there would be a growing confidence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that in verse 8? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 20, as it was read earlier in the service, says, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord of the Lord our God. No matter what the danger, no matter how great, the maker of heaven and earth is the one on our side. Grow, my friends, in confidence. Brothers and sisters, we should be confident in God's promise to build his church. We should be confident in God's promise to save and that there is no one that is too far off that his hand cannot reach. Do you think his arm is too short to save? There is no sin too great, no life too messed up, no addiction too great. Grow in your confidence in the help that comes from the name of the Lord, our God. You know, I think when we think about this as Christians, we're, we're not making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem this week. I'm heading to Louisville this week for a pastor's conference, but friends, that's not Jerusalem, nor is it even a modern equivalent although the Southern Baptist Seminary is there. We are headed on a pilgrimage to heaven, the new city, the new Jerusalem. And when we think about the New Testament teaching as Christians about God being with us and on our side, I quickly was reminded of, I don't know, the wrong season text, the text of Matthew chapter 1, the text of Christmas. Are you all familiar with Matthew chapter 1 when Jesus is announced as the virgin boy to be born by Mary. It says in Matthew chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Notice the way that the name of Jesus is attached with the forgiveness of sins. And then also notice He says, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you realize that in verse 1 of Psalm 124, if it had not been that the Lord was on our side, that phrase in the Hebrew is the same phrase when we see God is with us. So how do we know that God is with us? 
look most clearly at Jesus Christ and look more specifically at the name of Jesus that leads to the forgiveness of our sins and our great deliverance of the dangers that we face. You see, it is by looking at Jesus that we see the great fulfillment of Psalm 124, that his name has power to save. He is the maker of heaven and earth, and it is because of Jesus that we know that God is on our side and he is with us. We will find deliverance through the name of Jesus. And this is why we see not just in the stories of the Gospels and the story of Christmas, but really the story of the whole church. Our New Testament scripture reading was from Acts chapter 4. Isn't that a sweet story? Jesus has already died. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and the church is now starting in Acts chapter 2. One day in Acts chapter 3, Peter, he's on his way toward the temple for his daily prayers, and he sees a lame man that can't walk, and he heals him. The man seems to be asking for silver or gold, and Peter looks over him, he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. And the man got up and walked. Everybody around was going crazy. Whoa! You know, what just happened? Praising God. It was, it was a scene, a scene that then led to danger. Because in Acts chapter 3 and 4, this led a big uproar of more and more people wanting to follow Jesus and praise God through the name of Jesus. And they continued proclaiming Jesus in their preaching and teaching. So they arrested these guys for healing a man and proclaiming Jesus. And so the story that we had read to us earlier in the service from Acts chapter 4 is them standing before these men who arrested them and detained them and said to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And did you notice when Zach was reading that passage for us, he says, by what name or, or what power? How did you do this? And the answer, if we're being asked and we're being questioned right now about doing a good deed to a man that couldn't walk, let it be known to you today that it was by the name of Jesus, by no other name by man can we be saved under heaven. It's the name of Jesus. It's just a wonderful, fascinating story in Acts chapter 3 and 4, that the continuation of Jesus' name throughout the book of Acts is how the church grows and is built and where we receive power and where we receive strength and confidence. So our help comes in the name of the Lord. Let's be more specific. Let's tell the rest of the story. Our help comes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the God-man who became sin for us, died on a cross, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and if you have faith in his name, you're never the same again. You're changed. You know the song by Charles Wesley, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing? Jesus, the name that charms our fears. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music to the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. It's his name that breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. I hope you guys know some of these sweet old songs. Like How good is that for you to meditate on when you think about our help in the name of the Lord Jesus? Jesus, the name that charms your fears and bids your sorrows cease. 
the name that breaks the power of canceled sin. Those of you struggling in sin, do you realize that all sins that you're struggling with are canceled sins, paid for fully on a cross? None of them are saying, condemned to die. Your fight with sin will be a whole lot different if you understand the help that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of his name. His name is powerful. It breaks the prisoner free. It makes the foulest clean. He is the creator God who spoke the world into existence, the the maker of heaven and earth. His name, it sums up all who he is. And it's Jesus, when we know that Jesus is the man God, the representation of Yahweh, the phrase we see here in Psalm 124, verse 8, that our help comes in the name of Yahweh. Who is this God? It's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the I Am and the Holy and Righteous One. He is the author of life and death, the bread of life. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. No one or no thing has ever compared to this name. All promises find their yes and amen in the name of Jesus, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the great and final high priest. That's the name that you find your help in this morning and every day. He is the hope of glory. In Christ we have the hope of glory. He is the final judge of the living and the dead. It is through Jesus that we find grace and truth. He is the image of the invisible God, the Word made flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And as our benediction will point to in just a moment, He is the name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He alone is Lord. Do you have an unshakable confidence in the power of the name of Jesus Christ? There is no sin. There's no danger, there's no struggle that is too great for the God who made heaven and earth. Our help comes from the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. If we're humbled on our faces, we're overwhelmed with thanksgiving and looking back at what God has already done and realizing there is no reason whatsoever to doubt his promises, how can you not have great overwhelming confidence that God will see to it to the end. So let us never be confused. Jesus Christ alone saves, and he has saved, and he will save. Let's pray together.